0: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today's Throwback Thursday episode is going back to 2016. This is a while ago. We talked to Debbie Madero about Iditarod Trail Racing. She picked up the sport at 47 years old, uh, decided to get into this dog sledding, uh, and did the Iditarod. I know a lot of y'all probably know what that is. A huge, amazing, legendary race in Alaska every year. Um, we're coming out of winter right now, but it's still such a cool story to talk about, and it's it's great to revisit this one. Just Debbie's uh, so approachable and, and and excited to talk about this, so I loved this episode, and, and happy to reshare it. Um, and again, as a reminder, I'm going to be in Denver this weekend, uh, premiering a film. Oh, not premiering. It's it's going to be a tour now. we we're, we're taking the film on tour, Journey to One Hundred about one of the Adventure Sports Podcast alumni, Jason Hardrath, uh, his journey to 100 fastest known times. We have a film. Uh, Come hang out. There's going to be free athletic brewing beer, uh, non-alcoholic craft beer, that is, as well as uh, Q&As. We're going to have about $1,000 worth of giveaways. So links in the show notes, if you want to get tickets, they're $10. We have already given out the free tickets. We had two free tickets to give out. Uh, and then we'll, the following weekend we'll be in Portland and then Seattle. So if you want to meet me, want to hear about uh, you know from a gasy a film, hang out. I'd love to have you there. So uh, that will be in Golden, Colorado this weekend at the American Mountaineering Center downtown Golden, right outside of Denver. And uh, yeah, would love to see you. All right, let's go ahead and jump in.
1: Well, it won't be long before all of the snow is gone, and we'll soon be complaining about that heat. So why not have one more winter adventure story on the show before that happens? Debbie Modrow moved to Alaska in 1979 to pursue mountain climbing. But after adopting an Alaskan husky named Salt, she and her family quickly discovered a love for another sport involving these wonderful animals. This newfound love for a husky turned the Modrow family into a family of mushers. In 2003, at the age of 47, Debbie decided to take a crack at the 1,000-mile-long Iditarod sled dog race for the first time. And she's with me today to describe her experiences in this 43-year-old event. Debbie, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much, Travis. It's great to be on. It's
1: good to have you. So I was telling you, my wife came across your book in the bookstore the other day, and she said, you should interview this woman. And I did some research on you, and you look like you're having an amazing story. And I think everybody loves in a story about the Iditarod uh, slug dog race it's a uh, it's been something in the Alaskan history you know for like I said 43 years they're they're out there on the trail right now um, let's get into a little bit of background about you and how you you really got to start in racing sled dogs
2: well I grew up in New England believe it or not um, in a family that loved the outdoors and dogs. My dad and brother had hunting dogs. I grew up with English setters and labs, and I also grew up skiing. And so, when I graduated from college, I moved west to Wyoming, and I came to Alaska on a mountain climbing expedition at the age of 24. Um, Fell in love with my husband and the Great North and moved up to Alaska. And it wasn't all that much longer before I discovered both the Iditarod itself and these incredible huskies that have, I really like to refer to them as the founding dogs of of the north. And um, I knew that at one point I had to get on a dog sled. Um, I never dreamt that I would end up running the Iditarod or have a backyard dog team that was the center of our family, but that's what happened.
1: (laughs) So you fell in love with the dogs, and it was just one of those—you know—I need to—I need to try this sport out because the dogs just make it seem so exciting. I mean, it, every time I see them run, it's just like they have this this true love for for running. They just want to keep running, keep running, keep running.
2: Well, I mean, the first time I saw an I did a on team, I was just spellbound. I mean, these dogs so in tune with their musher. Watching a musher go to the head of the line at a countdown at a starting line, I saw that long before I ran it myself. And the canine-human bond was incredible. And the joy those dogs have in anticipating heading out on the trail is is really something to behold. Um, of course, you don't just jump in to the sport and, and run the Iditarod. Um, our story really began when we adopted one retired Iditarod husky.
1: So your family ended up uh, being a family of mushers, right? I mean, you had other, other family members who decided to get into it and also have run the Iditarod as well?
2: Right. Well, we adopted salt when uh, my children were five and six. And I had just suffered two mid-pregnancy miscarriages. I was totally down in the dumps. And a friend called and said, I have a present for you. Um, If you and this dog aren't getting along in the next week, you can return him. But he's going to turn your life around. And I thought, I don't want a present. Leave me alone. And uh, Salt and I started ski-joring together. He, He and his harness man skis. And, I mean, he really got me back on my feet uh, metaphorically and literally, but my little kids fell in love with him also. And before you know it, that same family that had given us this incredibly wonderful animal said, let's go to the dog sled trails this weekend. We'll loan you some dogs and we'll get you guys out on sleds. And so they did, Um, Andy and Hannah, of course, wanted to run in the one and the two dog classes within a winter. And so we had three dogs in our backyard. Then they graduated to the three and five dog classes. So we had eight dogs in our backyard. And um, my husband loved building sleds, making lines, fixing up our truck so that we could carry multiple dogs um, places. And we started camping with them. And it was really the foundation of our family was this dog team in the backyard that got ever larger.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, those dogs absolutely become part of your family as well. So you don't have a a couple kids. You have a whole group of kids at that point. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the Iditarod a little bit. Um, The history of the Iditarod was based off of what?
2: Well, a man called Joe Reddington and a group of his close friends wanted to honor the trail, first and foremost, that went across the state of Alaska that had been used for hauling freight, um, the mail trail during the gold rush days, the trail that had really linked the villages. um, Some people refer to it as the frozen trail. The fact was in the early 20th century, you couldn't get from place to place in Alaska in winter, in terms of the interior anyway, without a dog team. And so Joe Reddington wanted to honor the trail and the dogs that had used it, um, and he founded the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race in 1973. Um, the race has progressed over many years. It has become, you know, way shorter. The record that Dallas CV established this week is eight days and some hours um, you know, I think the first finisher finished in 20 days or something like that. So it's gotten much faster, much more competitive. Um, but every year, the first Saturday of March, most Alaskans know that it's Iditarod Day. And if you're in the sport at all, it's kind of, it's kind of like the axis on the, on the calendar. <laughs> it's the, it's the day of the year when, when the big race sets out.
1: It's like the the Super Bowl day. That's just what you happen to be doing. You may not even be into football. You just happen to be doing the Super Bowl day.
2: <laughs> That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah, I saw that uh, Dallas C V had uh, had won this year, and I was just researching a little bit of the stats in the current race. And you know, it's amazing. There were seventy two mushers out there, and. I was, I was blown away by the, the variation in times that these guys have. You know, Dallas uh, and the, the front runners finished, what, two days ago, and there's right. still 28 mushers out on the trail even right now. And that's, uh, that's a pre- pretty big variation in teams.
2: Well, like a, a big marathon event, I did draw as a draws draw an extremely competitive crowd at the front, Um, we have a family pool every year and it's, it's hard. We, we name who we think are going to come in the top 10. And, uh, I think all of us are pretty much looking at 30 names that could do that. Um, Iditarod is also interesting because the age range, Dallas is in his twenties, but there are some highly competitive mushers in their sixties in the top 10. Um, wisdom really matters. The number of times you've traveled that Root. The more years you've had with dogs, the more you know. And so, um, it's it's not like most sports. When once you get into your mid thirties, you're kind of all washed up. It's not that way at all. Dallas is absolutely the exception. As a as a young man, he's won four times. So he's really taking the sport by storm.
1: Yeah, that's cool. So take us through a little bit of the experience of being out on the trail. I mean, a thousand miles. I I can. I can really think of it as a 1,000-mile motorcycle rider, 1,000-mile trip in a car across the country. Um, that's a long distance, but obviously we're not talking straight-line interstate when you're talking about the Iditarod. So <laughs> what is it you experience out there uh, from day one on this on this route?
2: Well, if I could back up to a teeny bit before day one, um, the specter of 1,000 miles alters your entire year before you go. I mean, that is a long way. And what it really means is you have to train for um, a running, resting cadence that you and the dogs can deal with efficiently and very happily. And that is a very tricky business because there are a million different ways to do it. Um, The trail itself, the first two to 300 miles goes over the Alaska Range, which um, is the home range for Denali. Highest peak in North America. There's very technical mountainous terrain that you have to get over the first third of the race. Second third of the race is essentially on the river system. Lots of miles on the Yukon River. Um, does give you a chance to recover physically a little bit from the what can be a real thrashing in the mountain range. Um, but the wind on the Yukon, the cold on the Yukon can be very daunting And then you get to the coast and it's a whole different scene out there. Um, You're going uh, through communities that live right on the edge of the sea. You're on and off sea ice. The wind whistles. You hear it. You smell salt in the air. It's a totally different experience than running through the interior of Alaska. Um, And you really are tasked with meeting whatever challenge comes your way. And of course, Alaska throws weather patterns at you and temperatures um, and trail conditions that can vary tremendously from one moment to the next.
1: So how do they run checkpoints? Because you have to make sure you get to certain checkpoints throughout the, the race for them to keep track of you. And I'm sure you have, I would assume you have rest points where you need, you have mandatory rest. Is that right?
2: Right. So you, the uh, traditional Iditarod Trail has 22 checkpoints. And we send out provisions for ourselves and our dogs before the race begins to each of those checkpoints. So dog food, dog booties, your own human food that you're going to eat, massage, ointment, anything you would need to care for the dogs, that's all waiting for you. But that's really the blueprint for your race. Um, you're required to stop Um, In checkpoints, long enough to sign in and out. And at most checkpoints, veterinarians will go over your entire team of dogs. So you stay long enough for that purpose. Um, Some people camp a lot between checkpoints. Other people choose to to camp in the checkpoints. Um, There's benefits to both. Uh, And that's pretty much how it works. You start with 16 dogs these days, and you can drop a dog, meaning you can leave it in the hands, of veterinarians at a checkpoint to be flown home, that dog might not be into it emotionally. It might be a female in heat that's disrupting your team. It might be the wear and tear of the trail, a sore wrist or shoulder, something like that. But dog care is front and center of each one of those checkpoints.
1: Okay, okay. Well, speaking of dogs, it's got to be amazing to be a human being working with a team of animals. Uh, Like we said, it's your family, but you can't be in the mines and you can't sit there and have a conversation with these animals. And sometimes they make their own decisions, right? So (laughs) I understand that your first attempt in 2003 uh, went well until you got uh, very close to the finish line. Tell us a story about that.
2: That's right. Well, my my motivation to run was to go on the ultimate journey with my dogs. That was it. I mean, the only reason I went was for the dogs. And I'd come off these incredible years with our kids and our dogs and we'd all had so much fun together and my first a rod, of course, I had a lot to learn. You don't practice a 1000-mile run by going on a 1000-mile run, you know. You just don't. You you do everything you can prepare Um, everything you can do to prepare, and and then you go out there. And our run was going pretty well until we got to the coast. And when we left the checkpoint of Tulik, which is the checkpoint that leads you to Koyuk across a 30-mile sea ice crossing, my dogs got completely intimidated by this white ice landscape. The wind was whipping as it often does. There's that smell of salt in the air. And they sat down and in a very theatrical way told me there was no way they were going another step. (laughs) Um, I could have sawed my leg off and I wouldn't have been as disheartened as I was by the broken bond with my dogs. I I was devastated and um, I train and run only on positive reinforcement and encouragement. I have a lot of patience with animals and I, I'd never asked them to do anything they didn't want to do before. And so when they didn't want to do it, I had a very bad time or unsuccessful time convincing them that we were only a few days away from the finish. So we called it quits and flew to Nome instead of ran there on our own feet or on their feet. And <laughs> if you could only communicate with them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was a very humbling experience, you know. I, I had also been pretty successful. No, we didn't have a highly competitive dog team, but I've been done well in shorter races. And, um, particularly given that we didn't have a huge dog team. And, um, I was, I was sure I could get to Nome um, without a whole lot of trouble. And I was corrected.
1: Well, so does that happen much, uh, to people? I imagine other teams have experienced the same thing from, at times. Well,
2: you know, it's interesting this week, it happened to two mushers that I know of. I'm sure it happened to others. Um, you know, a dog team is a very interpersonal, multi-dimensional entity. You've got sixteen personalities out there; they're interacting with you and one another. In my case, they were all rookies, like I was, or most of them were. We had bought a few dogs that had gone there before, and uh, a lot. There's a lot that goes on. I will never know what really happened. I believe that an alpha dog on my team. Didn't like the coast. Ironically, she was the one. She was the one that had gone before, and I thought she was really going to give my my little petunias some confidence. But um, she had gone with a very competitive musher before, and you know, he finished I think in nine ten days. And and uh, <clears throat> when I got out there, we'd already been out there 10, 11 days when we got to the coast. And she, I believe, um, communicated to the others that this was not a fun place. That's one theory. Another theory is I might've fed them too much. When I get to a point where I get really tired and you're really tired by the time you get to the coast, um, I begin to doubt myself a little bit. And I think most people are probably like that. Um, my, my gauge from daring to doubt begins to waver toward doubt. And so as a result, I was like, oh my goodness, I've got to feed these dogs more. They're looking thin. Well, of course they're looking thin. They've been out for 11 days and I would ask the veterinarians time and again, or my dogs too do thin? No, they're beautiful, Debbie. They look great. But still, I was feeding them more and more. Well, you don't need a hamburger at mile 22 of a marathon, you know, and have that go over very well. So um, I've got some different theories. The landscape played into it, but um, I'll never really know what happened. But um, And it does happen to others. It happened to Brent Sass just this week and to another really great musher called Michelle Phillips, Um, they had to shut down their operation for 24 hours and try again or, or close to that. And they both fell way back in the standings before they could get their dogs to, to realize that all was well, you know, but, um, it took me by surprise.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask, what do you do in that situation? Um, especially if you're out in the middle of nowhere and between checkpoints and your dogs just decide to stop running. I mean, how do you, how do you, either decide whether to con- try to convince them to, to go on or just decide to throw in the towel. I mean, if these dogs aren't moving, how do you figure out which is the best option?
2: Well, after that happened to me, I talked to a lot of people and I would answer that differently now. At the time, um, I was in a quandary whether to return to Tulik, give them a long rest and try again, which in hindsight, I wish I had done Instead, I elected to follow a snow machine. My dogs were perfectly happy to follow a snow machine. (laughs) Um, And so, and the snow machine was given permission to to go ahead of me for about seven miles to a shelter cabin in the middle of the sea ice or on the edge of the sea ice. And um, so we followed them and stayed there for 36 hours. And I kept trying to tuck in behind other mushers that were going by, but my dogs, they just wouldn't have anything of it. So... In the end, um, the race knew I was stuck out there, and they sent out trail sweeps to help bring me back to Shakhtulik, where I – I mean, at that point, it's assistance, and I knew I had to scratch from the race. Um, My second race, it's right on the cover of my book. I did get to the finish, so there's no secret about that. But um, I elected to take the exact same dogs because I wanted to finish what we started together, even though many people advised me that once they – they acted up in that circumstance. Unless I went and trained on the coast, it was likely to happen again. And um, let's just say that my second run was not carefree either. But but we got there in very fine form in the end. But it was a it it was not certain I was going to make it to the finish until I did.
1: <laughs> and that was in two thousand five, right?
2: That was in two thousand and five, right?
0: Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. You know, on this show, we talk a lot about the adventure, but it's honestly the time between the adventure that is most important. Being adventure ready, as we say. And the most important aspect of that is knowing your body and knowing what's going on inside your body. And the most important company that can help you do that is Inside Tracker, literally tracking what's going on inside your body. Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data and provides you with a clear picture of what exactly is going on so that you can make changes to your diet or see what's going working, what isn't. And how they do it is they analyze all the data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to help you optimize your body and know what's really going on. So if you'd like to learn more or get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store, go to InsideTracker.com com slash adventure sports that is inside tracker slash adventure sports inside tracker can get you ready and keep you ready for all your favorite adventure sports that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode so i i this is probably
1: a dumb question when i'm talking to a musher but do you remember the time that you finished in
2: you know, you know what? I don't even know what place I came in, but the the incredible part of my finish was that I I have been an athlete all my life, and I have um, I've held myself to really high standards. And my Iditarod journey was messy. Both of my races were. The second one went way way better, but um, it wasn't all pretty and. Yet, when I got to that finish line, that was the most satisfying moment of my life. And I can't imagine there will be one more satisfying. And I I think it was because I knew I had changed and I really understood a little bit more about what success really entailed um, instead of holding myself to some perfectionistic standard that I think you can't always control. And um, I, I learned that I wasn't fully in control and I had to get creative and, uh, really the lessons on the trail weren't right there at the finish. They were in the, in the struggle along the way.
1: Yeah. That's gotta be amazing. A learning experience. It sounds like one of your dogs behind you right now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One of my leaders is behind me right now. <laughs> Very just cool. stood up and shook. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I could tell. So aside from dogs just deciding they don't want to run, what's a, a fun story about a time when things didn't quite go as planned on one of these?
2: Oh, you know, mushing, there are lots of those. Mushing a team of dogs, um, I, I guess what I can describe most is there's there's one, tri- one uh, series of miles in my second race. I left Rainy Pass, which is high, high, high in the mountain range, one morning at 7 a.m. And um, I had taken a complete thrashing the day before on the cliffs of the Happy River Steps. I'd bent my sled, I'd bloodied up my face. I was um, I was mortified, but determined because a very um, major landmark called Dalzell Gorge was coming on the next run. And I left early that morning and we went high up on this mountain pass and everything was so beautiful. And the dogs were trotting in this perfect cadence. And I called out each dog's name and they looked back at me. And it was one of those high moments um in life that i just will never forget i couldn't believe that after all those years the family and everything else i had come to this place with my dogs and then the trail started going downhill so here i'm I'm off this you know epitome of joy moment and a helicopter comes up behind me and We went through these gnarly side hills, and then we started snaking around trees. There were huge holes in the trail, and I kept tipping over into one after the other after the other. And I realized that this helicopter was filming me. And I became more and more furious that I was what they were looking for, because I knew the front runners of the race were a couple hundred miles ahead. And I thought, oh, I know what they want. They want to see me go off the steep, steep drop off into the Dalzell Gorge. And sure enough, my dogs disappear over this cliff two by two by two. And I think I am going to stay on my feet and I can see that camera dangling. And I, I managed to get over that drop off in one piece. And after this miserable performance that I knew very well, they'd been filming I just, I had on these big Arctic mittens and I raised my hands over my head at that helicopter and raised my middle finger. Of course, they didn't see it and I never would have done it publicly. And (laughs) I just thought, take that. I just did that well. So, and the dogs are just rolling in the snow. I I really think, you know, a moment like that, it took me out of myself. It made me, it, it irritated me, but it brought out the best in me because that helicopter was really like a challenger, you know, just saying, if you don't do this, this is going to be on some TV show and you're going to really, you're going to really be out there. And I just thought, darn it all, I'm going to do this. And I did. So the dogs were really happy. And so was I when that was over.
1: <laughs> and you raised your mitten and triumph. And I raised my armpits <laughs> to the
2: sky. The helicopter, no, I, they thought it was the victory sign. Little did they know what I was doing.
1: You were number one at that moment, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, let's talk about your book. Um, Your book was just released last month, if I'm not mistaken. It's called Fast Into the Night, A Woman, Her Dogs, and Their Journey North on the Iditarod Trail. So your book is more than just the Iditarod Trail. So take some time, go into it, tell the listeners what it is that they're going to be reading and summarize it. How's that?
2: Well, I hope what I did was write a, a true memoir, meaning that looking back to the lens of time, I tried to make sense of the story I lived and I wanted to honor the dogs by writing that story. So I hope I did those two things. Um, the book uh, juxtaposes chapters um, of narrative about my two runs to Nome Um, interspersed with flashbacks to my story as a young girl with these incredibly um, wonderful parents in Connecticut. Um, And as the stakes of my Iditarod journey go higher, I dig deeper into my past and my relationship with both my present family and my my original family. So um, it's a it's a love story about the dogs. It's a story about how I met my husband. It's our family story. Um, and I I believe as well, it is illustrative of, of what an honor it is to have had such very cool and adventurous parents.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I was looking at the uh, the reviews on Amazon, and it's definitely getting some good reviews. So it it must be a good book. You must have done a great job.
2: Well, I'll tell you what. Um, it was. It, it might have been harder to write the book than it was to, <laughs> to run the race. <laughs> five years into it, I was meeting with editors and agents who were saying, "Oh, it's this kind of a story," or "Oh, you need to write about that." And I thought, "Darn it!" I was sort of like they were kind of like the helicopter in the sky. I was like, "This is my book. I'm going to write my story." And I went back to school and got an MFA five years into writing it, and so um, that that really made all the difference. Um, I, I needed to find my own voice and, and get the craft of writing um, into, a, into better form. So um, I was pretty thrilled. Soon after school, I sold the memoir to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, which is a dream for a writer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so tough to do for so many aspiring writers.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. They've been so wonderful to work with. And um, it's, it's, it's been a real joy. My book tour was a, just a wonderful, wonderful time.
1: Well, great. Well, you mentioned uh, before the interview that uh, you might indulge us and, and send a couple of books out. So we would love to be able to give those away to uh, to the audience and uh, and get some people uh, hooked up with your writing.
2: No, oh, that'd be great. I, I love having readers after working on the book for 11 years to to talk to readers and to get emails from readers makes me very, very um, happy.
1: <laughs> very cool. Okay, and so where can people go find out more about you and the book?
2: Well, I have a website, DebbieClarkMotoro.com. That's Clark with an E. Um, you, can, you can buy the book through Amazon or through and in your independent bookstore right off my website um, or go to um, your own bookstore and ask for it. Hopefully, they'll have it. Um and my, my website, my Facebook page link and my Instagram link are right on my website. So the website's really the best best place to go. I do blog a couple times a month and there's a newsletter sign up on my website so you can get my blogs by email and I, I um, or you can see them on the website. I put pictures into the newsletter as well.
1: Okay, great. Well, as usual, uh, we'll get your website linked up uh, on the AdventureSportsPodcast.com site so that people can find it easily and uh, find their way to you and your book.
2: Well, that would be great. Yeah. Thanks
1: so much. So let's talk about motivation to do all this. This is not an easy task to, uh, to take on thousand mile sled dog race. Where do you draw your motivation from to go through all the training and the preparation to do these?
2: Well, in the case of Iditarod, my motivation came from the dogs. You know, I, I had done 200 and 300 mile races, um, but I'm I'm very committed and pe- to the love of the Alaskan wilderness. Um, those of us lucky enough to live up here understand there are are very high stakes in this wilderness. Um, but to travel through it with your 16 best sled dog friends is really the honor of a lifetime. And I I realized. Um, it is in my book. My son ran I Did a Rod between high school and college. And at the finish line, he said to me, Mom, you have to do this. And I honestly, I was such a mom. I never, ever would have put my mushing ahead of, of Andy or Hannah's, our children, um, while they were at home. Mark wouldn't have either, my husband. Um, but when my son, my 18 year old son, said that to me, and I knew I was looking at the empty nest, I thought, I will. I'll do that. We've got 22 dogs in the backyard, and this is the ultimate chance. And I realized I was incredibly fortunate to have that chance. So it almost felt wrong not to um, take advantage of that really incredible opportunity. And by the same token, by the time I got done with what turned into a 2,000 mile I did a I felt like it would be really selfish. Not to write a book, I felt like I needed to share it because it, it it was such a big experience. And then if I kept it all to myself, I felt like that that was wrong. So immediately at the you know, Andy handed me this legacy to run Iditarod. And before before I crossed underneath the Burled Arch finish line in Nome, I knew I was going to run. I was going to write a book. I just I knew it because I wanted to give something back.
1: So what'd you think about, or do you have any plans on doing another one?
2: No, I don't. Um, my new, my new adventure, I mean, we do have, we have 26 dogs in the backyard now. Um, we do go on trips with them. We love working with them, taking other people out with them. Um, but my new adventure, and I guess I define adventure as sort of, being on the cusp of something I'm not sure I can do. I, I really wanna write about um, interacting with other species in the context of climate change, which is so evident where we live. And so I'm I'm really hoping to write another book that does include sled dogs and possibly interactions with other species like migratory birds. Um, the landscape up here is changing in front of our eyes. It's not subtle at all. and. Uh, to retrace my steps back through landscapes I've traveled in the last 20 years with dogs and otherwise um, is, I think, where I want to go now with my writing. And uh, I, I think I will return with dogs to some of those places and, and have it be part of the project.
1: Well, that's admirable.
2: Well, we'll see. This is one of those things, you know.
1: <laughs> it's, a, yeah, it's a good goal, at least. I
2: like it. <laughs> Goals are one thing. Getting there is another.
1: Yeah, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. So I was curious, the ratio of men to women from what you've seen uh, running this race, what would you say it is?
2: Um, there's a statistic out there. I don't know it. There's way more men in Iditarod than women, but the women do really well. Um, our sport is one of the few that is really and truly gender blind, Um, I, you know, I think you bring your strengths and weaknesses to the trail. Clearly at 125 pounds, my, my strength wasn't physical strength. Um, and you know, I, I had my, my weaknesses like anyone else, but I think men and women, um, compete on pretty equal footing, even though we may bring different attributes to our relationship with the dogs and how we go about going down the trail. There have been, Women champions of Iditarod. Allie Zirkle is came in third. She's come in second, I believe, three times before. I might have that wrong. I mean, she's just waiting for her chance to be first under the burled arch. Um, when you think of how few women there are, you might find that there's a statistic that they do really, really well. Um, not in numbers, but proportionately to men.
1: Okay. It doesn't seem as though it's a, it's a, a sport that's, Overly prohibitive to get involved in. Obviously, you know you need a team of dogs and the sled and, and training. And it's of course a different story when you get out there on the trail and you're going. You're starting out that first mile of a thousand. Um, what about any advice for people that who've always thought maybe they'd like to try the Iditarod uh, or sled dog, you know, racing in general?
2: Um, my advice actually would be that Iditarod does not represent the sport and the sport is there for the taking. You can have so much fun with a backyard dog team of eight dogs. And maybe a friend of yours has another eight. Um, And Iditarod is not the only race. I mean, I was lucky and I, we wouldn't have set out to go all the way to Nome if it hadn't just sort of happened to us that we had that number of dogs when our kids left for college because of their racing the junior I did a rod, which was 10 dogs each. So we had to have 20 plus dogs for that. Um, you can start out with a ski during dog, get the hang of harnessing a dog up, see what it's like. They are, that's a lead dog. If you have one dog ahead of you and they're pulling you on skis, there's your leader. He doesn't have any teammates alongside him or her. You know, that dog would probably do really well in front of a team of four or five dogs. And you can go Anywhere with a six, seven, eight dog team, it's a lot of fun. Iditarod is expensive. We we budget twenty thousand dollars for an rod run, and that's after you already own the dogs and the equipment. So oh, that's uh, yeah, that's
1: more prohibitive than I would have thought.
2: That's a lot of expense. <laughs> well, there's vet bills, there's supplies, there's equipment, there's new equipment, there's better equipment. You know, the, you send out extra supplies. It, there's a lot that goes into it, but. The, the lifestyle, sharing your life with a small group of dogs in your backyard, if you love winter, um, and you love dogs is an incredibly, um, inspiring and satisfying experience.
1: I think ski joring sounds and looks amazing. Uh, I did, I had never even heard of it until uh, a previous interview on this show, um, and he had mentioned ski joring and explained it a little bit. Would you go into that a little bit? Because it just sounds like you, it'd be a blast.
2: You bet. When I first adopted Salt, he was seven. And um, I I was out of shape and down in the dumps. And I took that dog up to the parking lot above our house and and pulled out his harness and he went crazy. So you put the harness on the dog. You've got on typically cross-country skis or mountaineering skis where your heels are free. And, um, I attached a rope to the end of his harness. I had on just a belt that day. I knotted it around my belt and said, hike. And I mean, we took off and thank goodness I had an Alpine ski background because we went flying down the trail, this dog and I, and it's so fun. And, um, it's I, I mean, I still look back fondly with a team of dogs. You're dealing with a team dynamic, but there's nothing like that. One ski juring dog and you running through a snowstorm, going around a blind corner, running up on, on um, a moose or, you know, in the lower 48. You know, for us, it's caribou. I mean, that and and the dog's excitement and you thinking, whoa, what are we going to do this? Am I going to put on the brakes? Am I going to plunk myself down so we don't move any further? I mean – The one-on-one with the dog is incomparable. And it really is the heart of the mushing relationship too. You've just got an ever um, more complicated dynamic on the line in front of you because these dogs are not machines. They're full of personality and pep.
1: That sounds like a blast. Are there... Any? Do you know of any tour outfits that actually do skijoring? I mean, you, know, you hear like a lot of uh, dog sledding outfits that do tours, but I've never heard of skijoring as a as an option for people to try.
2: You know, I don't know about that. I bet they exist, but that's a really good question, and I've never been asked that question before. I'm
1: just thinking of things I would like to try, and that, that yeah. would be one of them for Maybe sure. Maybe that's
2: what we should do next. Take yeah. people out skijoring. That's you a really should. Bad- <laughs> and then invite me up.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a blast. Well, I saw you uh, video of you as I was researching you a little bit, and you were uh, you're actually being pulled on an ATV by the dogs. Let I me mean, assume you were out running and training them. And I thought, wow, my my son, my twelve year old son, would absolutely love the idea of that. He loves ATVs and he loves dogs. So <laughs> what could be better than that?
2: Right. Well, that's how we start training every year. Our training starts usually in August. It's good if it's fifty degrees or less. And we hook our team up to an ATV as if it was a sled, and then we drive the dogs through their early miles of the season. You know, we hope for October snow, but sometimes the ATV season goes on for a while. It's good and cold if it's colder than 10 below to sit on one of those machines. It's not my favorite thing to do, but the dogs love it, you know, and they get in really good shape pulling those machines. Um, <laughs>
1: I'm sure. Better for a 12-year-old boy.
2: That's right. <laughs> I probably
1: shouldn't have said that. I'll probably be bugged to buy a team of dogs and a, in a right, TV at right. this point. Right, And
2: you better watch out if you get one dog for ski touring. It's a slippery slope after that.
1: Yeah, I'll bet. That's what I was thinking. I could limit it to one dog and we could still have fun.
2: <laughs>
1: so let's, uh, let's go into a, a fun story. Um, we oh, talked about the things that could go wrong. How about things that it was just a, a completely amazing experience out there? Uh, behind a team of dogs?
2: Oh, there's so many of them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing an article right now about your first run and uh, what it's like to step on the runners for the first time. And in my case, we had adopted SALT. And of course, I have this competitive ski background behind me. And the person who gave us SALT Um, he was an Iditarod musher. But one reason he wanted us to have salt is because he wanted his wife and I to go mushing together. He wanted to find a mushing buddy for his wife. So soon after they gave us salt, she invited me to go mushing and to bring salt. And so I did. And these people have lived in Alaska a lot longer than I had at the time. And um, they they had spent a lot of time in the rural part of Alaska. Very matter of fact is get her done type mentality. And I pulled up in my little Subaru, and there was their big dog truck, you know, and Jeanette had her five dogs all hooked up, ready to go, and there were three other dogs hooked to her truck right there, and I pulled in, and Salt went crazy, just pawing at the door to get out, and so we get out, and I hadn't slept all night. I was so excited because I'd been invited to go mushing, and... Um, She showed me my sled and I asked her a bazillion questions, you know, changing your weight and how to go around corners and how to talk to the dogs and all this. And she just looked at me and she said, Debbie, the dogs know what you're doing. You need to hang on. And within about two minutes, Salt was in lead with one of her dogs who was jumping 10 feet high in the air. There were two dogs barking, barking, barking behind. She took off and said pull that slip knot and follow me and off we went. And I was terrified. <laughs> I hardly knew where the brake was. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm sure. And of course I hesitated with my typical paralysis at the moment of watching her go and I had to pull the slip knot and figure out how to hold on to the handlebars and go and um, I managed to undo the knot. We got going. I I fell over at the first corner. It was drug on my my belly for a while, and finally the dogs stopped. And I looked up, and of course she had seen me coming and had stopped our team. And my dogs had run around hers, and um, she just looked at me and said, "Well, good job. Stand up. We're going to go some more." And uh, and we did. And I think before that first run was over, um, I just I was just totally infatuated with the sport. I mean, I did find my balance. The dogs got into this cadence where they can go forever. And we were slipping in and out of the shadows of this birch forest and going around curves. And I, I was already in love with salt and those other dogs were out there with him. And, um, I, I knew that I would do it again. I didn't quite know how I kind of had this desperate yearning to be invited again soon. And and that did happen. But, um, the the beauty of it, the beauty of connecting with another species to move down a trail, um, and even on that first run, you know, I was thrashing around. It wasn't all, it wasn't all easy. It wasn't all pretty, and it was so much fun. And at the end, I remember. We get close to the trucks again to this big parking area and there are all these big mushers putting out 20 dog teams, you know, and here I come bumping along behind Jeanette. I had no idea how competitive those dogs would feel when we got to the parking lot and my four dogs started passing her. Again, I fumbled around trying to find the brake, and I tipped over again and got drug up to the, the truck on my stomach again. I was just laughing and before I knew it those four dogs were are pouncing on me and wagging and rolling in the snow and I I just you know you had to laugh. It was great. It was wonderful. Yes. That was the introduction.
1: That's great. It paints a great picture. It sounds like they're giving you dog high fives there at the end of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they were they were in a big tangle and I'm sure the other mushers were like, "Oh, brother, that's a that's a messy operation." But I I was I was already smitten.
1: Uh, That's awesome. Sounds like a beautiful way to spend time in the woods with uh, some animals that you truly love.
2: Well, it is. And of course, the next progression is going camping with them, do like a cabin. And then you're putting out straw for them and feeding them three times a day and going on runs with them, exploring new trails, coming back to the cabin at night, cooking them meals, sitting around a bonfire right near them, going to bed, listening to them howl at night. I mean, that's... Being out on the trail with a team of dogs, um, with our young family, we did that every spring break for years. That's when we stopped coming to Colorado skiing. <laughs> but um, it was it was really
1: uh, it was really a joy. Oh, that sounds awesome. You got my attention there because that's, you know, anything, anytime where I can pack something up, you know, whether it be a backpack or load up a motorcycle or sounds like load up a, a sled dog team in and a, and a sled to go do multiple overnights uh, back in the mountains would be, it would be an amazing trip to do with these guys.
2: It's pretty great. And it's pretty great to see the trail through their eyes. You know, if, if there's a wild animal ahead, you know it because they raise their necks and their ears go get taller and their tails might get puffed up. So, you know, you're coming up on something, you know? And so you, you get to know your dog so well that, you know, you know, what's coming, um, through them and through your relationship with them. Yeah. Um, and so it's a really fun, it's a, it's a very, it's a very enlightening way to move through a wilderness in the winter. Yeah. I can imagine. Well, you paint a beautiful picture
1: Debbie, I appreciate you coming on and and sharing a little bit of uh, dog sledding and skijoring, and telling us about your book. Um, it sounds like an amazing story, and I I really do look forward to reading it myself.
2: Well, thanks so much, and I um, like I said, I just wanted to celebrate these incredible dogs and and share their share their world as best I could.
1: Well, we look forward to it. I appreciate your time, and you take care, and have a good evening then.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me on your show.
1: My
0: pleasure.